Welcome to the first of the Brighton and Sussex Medical School student podcasts. I'm Ian Wilkinson and I'm the leader of an SSC where students are making podcasts. These have all been made by Brighton and Sussex Medical School students. And coming up in this episode, this is what we're going to hear. One analogy that's sometimes thrown around is a biscuit factory. So if there is not enough conveyor belt coming into the biscuit factory, that's kind of your pre-renal causes. The sections you need to know about are sections 2, 3, 4, 5, 2 and 5, 4 and 1, 3, 6. How do you do? Let's get chatting about section 2. I actually made a mnemonic to help remember this. I have just had surgery, spelt as I-H-A-F. We've got episodes on the Mental Health Act, on acute kidney injury and post-operative complications. I'll now hand you over to the medical students and their own podcast. I'm Annabelle, a third-year medical student at Brighton and Sussex Medical School. Later on, I'll be joined by Dr. Rebecca Winter, a teaching fellow in medical education. So, acute kidney injury. Why it happens, how to spot it, and how to make an AKI A-OK. Today we'll be covering what is an AKI, AKI versus CKD, what causes an AKI, investigations and management. So, what is an AKI? Well, AKI aka acute kidney injury, arises where there's an acute fall in GFR and substances that are usually excreted, such as creatinine and urea, accumulate in the blood. Now you've probably heard of an AKI and you've probably also heard of chronic kidney disease. So what's the difference? So while an AKI is usually caused by an event that leads to kidney malfunction, such as dehydration, blood loss from major surgery, or the use of medicines, chronic kidney disease is usually caused by a long-term disease, such as hypertension or diabetes, that slowly damages the kidneys and reduces their function over time. The presence or lack of symptoms may help us to determine whether an acute kidney injury or chronic kidney disease is present, as well as looking at blood tests and any trends that may appear. So, the pathophysiology of AKI. For the most part, causes can be neatly divided into pre-renal, making up 60%, renal or intrinsic renal, making up 25%, and post-renal, making up 15%. In developing countries, obstetric complications and infections like malaria or dengue fever are important causes, but not so much in this country. Overall mortality rate is around 30-70%, to depending on age and the presence of other organ failure or disease. So, the pre-renal causes. Essentially, it's a lack of fluid passing the kidney. Uh, One analogy that's sometimes thrown around is a biscuit factory. So, if there is not enough um, conveyor belt coming into the biscuit factory, that's kind of your pre-renal causes. If the machine that puts the chocolate on the biscuit is broken, that's like your intrinsic renal causes. Or if when the biscuits have had their chocolate put on and they're making their way to the end of the conveyor belt, but there's a big blockage at the end, and so another way that the biscuits can't get out, that's a post-renal cause. So the pre-renal causes, often in an ITU setting, it's often due to major systemic disease, shock or circulatory failure, or renal artery stenosis or emboli. It's important to note as well that NSAIDs and ACE inhibitors can impair renal autoregulation, so can predispose to a renal AKI. Post-renal, jumping ahead slightly, 
is the obstruction to the flow of urine that causes back pressure, which stops the filtration from working properly. The subsequent swelling impacts the blood vessels and causes ischemia. Causes of the obstruction can be a stone, a stricture, a tumour or BPH, benign prostatic hyperplasia. This leads us neatly onto the next chunk of causes of AKI, the renal causes, perhaps seen as the more complicated causes. They can fall into broad categories such as glomerular disease and inflammation of the glomerular or glomerular nephritis, interstitial disease, and this can be caused by drugs such as NSAIDs, gentamicin, acyclovir, methotrexate, or infiltration due to lymphoma, TB, sarcoid, that kind of thing. Tubular injury, such as from ischemia, and any pre-renal cause can lead to this, like shock that decreases the blood supply to the kidney, causing this ischemia. Toxins, such as myoglobinuria, lipopolysaccharides in gram-negative sepsis, rhabdomyolysis caused by exercise or trauma, or vascular disease from inflammation and vasculitis. Finally, thrombosis is another cause of an, an intrinsic renal cause of an AKI. So how do we investigate an AKI? So now what I'd like to do is talk through the investigations. I'm here with Rebecca Winter. Hello. So if a patient has come in, let's say a 70-year-old male with a background of UTI, what kind of investigations would you be thinking about? I think in that case, um, the first two things I would be thinking about is one of them would be a bladder scan. Mm. Urinary retention's really easy to miss, um, mm. and although clinically we can palpate and percuss for it, we often miss it. So if you're in doubt, ask one of your colleagues or do it yourself, a bladder scan mm. on the ward as a bedside test. And my next test would be a urine dipstick because it's easy and it can give us a lot of information. So, for example, if there was a lot of blood or protein, Mm -hmm. you might be thinking about an intrinsic renal cause. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, um, if there were, for example, leukocytes and nitrites, it might make you suspect more of an infection. When you dip it, it will come back straight away there or is that something you wait for? No, so that would come up on your dipstick, Mm -hmm. like you say. So you dipstick it and you might see, for example, Mm -hmm. four four pluses of blood. Okay. or four plus of protein. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you've come onto a good point in that if we suspect a urinary tract infection, mm. we should send a midstream urine or MSU mm. for what we call an MCNS, so microscopy, culture and sensitivity, to see if there is a bacteria in the urine mm. and what it may grow. Okay, okay. And how do you get a midstream urine? So anyone within the team can do mm. it. Um, often the person that's obtained the urine for the urine dip will mm. keep that urine to mm. send for an MSU if it's needed. Okay, so we've got a urine dip and we've got uh, midstream urine and a bladder scan. And so those are the kind of things you would think of first. Are there any other things you might want to do? Yeah, so I would definitely want to do some blood tests, Mm. and there are quite a few blood tests you might think about doing in a suspected AKI. Mm. so the first test I would do would be in a ure- urea and electrolytes. This would help you for a number of reasons. The potassium is important because we know that high potassium or hyperkalemia can cause myocardial instability, so you'd worry about cardiac function. And also you would look at the urea and the creatinine um, and the EGFR within that. You might want to do a full blood count um, to look if there's any evidence of infection in there or anemia, which may suggest a chronic disease. Mm-hmm. 
Um, sorry, I forgot to say, when you look at the user needs, it's really important to compare it to the user needs before. So you must compare, because the definition of acute kidney injury mm. is that it's acute. So you need to make sure that you've seen that it's different. Mm. If you can't compare it, that you would treat it as mm. if it were an AKI until you could try and prove otherwise. Mm. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, and what what else would you do? Um, so I would want to do um, a CRP to look if there's any evidence of any inflammation. Um, I would think if there was any suspicion of a fall or a long lie, I would do a creatinine kinase to mm-hmm. look for rhabdomyolysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other blood tests would depend on kind of specific causes. So if you had a reason to suspect, there might be like a biliary infection or something, mm-hmm. liver function tests. And then there are more blood tests you can do if you suspect an intrinsic renal cause. Mm-hmm. I think that I wouldn't, they wouldn't be part of my routine um, screen, so I won't mention them just yet. Sure. And then the next blood test I would do is a culture if I thought that there was an infection, and then a venous blood gas um, to look. Particularly, I would expect there to be a metabolic acidosis, mm. um, and also it gives you an instant potassium because I would still be worried about that potassium. It would need mm, immediate of treatment. Because the cardiac instability that you mentioned. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Why might they get metabolic acidosis? Um, so the most common reason that they get metabolic acidosis would be that they're losing their bicarbonate. Mm. Um, so bicarbonate's obviously a base mm. or an alkali in your blood so mm. you can become acidotic as a consequence of that so the ratio of your carbon dioxide and your bicarbonate have been disrupted Okay. Um, but it could also be from a high lactate we know mm. lactic acid is an acid yeah. so if you the patient was septic or if they had any cause for reduced cell perfusion so mm. even a hypotension mm. or dehydration could cause a lactic acidosis as well. Okay, so we've got our user knees, our full blood count, our CRP, the urine dip and the bladder scan. Is there anything else you might want to do? Yeah, so I would do an ECG on a patient. Right, and you want the ECG partly because you're looking, if you're concerned about electrolytes, it would be good to see an ECG. And it also tells you about the general well-being of the patient if you're going to be filling the patients with fluids, like as a treatment for their AKI. Yes, definitely. Mm. But also an ECG is useful to tell you the patient's general condition. If they're dehydrated, they might have a tachycardia or have gone into an arrhythmia like atrial fibrillation. Sure. Um, And I would want to get a chest x-ray as well. Because people that you suspect have an AKI Mm. either may have an infection, for example, triggering it, which Mm. would cause a pre-renal cause, Mm. but also um, may need lots of fluids. So I'd want to know as a baseline what their chest x-ray looked like and the size of their heart as well. Right, because you don't want to overload them. If they've got like a big and large heart and they've got like fluid in the lungs, you don't want to be trying to treat their AKI with a bunch of fluid, Mm -hmm. but then the heart can't handle it. Exactly, and it doesn't mean that you wouldn't give fluid, Mm. it just gives you a baseline to know, I guess, along with your clinical assessment of how dry the patient is, um, and the history that you know about their cardiac function of how much fluid you would give. So Mm. it's always about a risk and benefit, but I'd like to see that as a baseline. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And then the last imaging I would want to do is consider an ultrasound renal tract. Mm -hmm. So... um, you, not everyone needs an ultrasound renal tract. The NICE guidelines say that you don't need to routinely offer if the cause of the renal failure is known. Mm-hmm. But you should do one if you have any suspicion that there's any renal obstruction um, or if you don't know the cause. And that should be done within the first 24 hours of someone coming in because obviously we're worried with a post-renal cause that mm-hmm. there might be hydronephrosis, so kind of swelling water in the kidneys mm-hmm. um, and that we might need to relieve that. And I I saw as well that um, to do with um, ultrasound, you can see whether they have small kidneys anyway. Mm -hmm. Would that be leaning you more towards like this is a chronic kidney condition than rather than an AKI? Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. Um, So if they had small kidneys, you might think about whether it's a chronic kidney disease. 
The other thing is, many people have never had any imaging of their kidneys, mm. and you might find like a congenital abnormality, like some people only have one or a horseshoe kidney mm. or things like that. So it can be useful, but we don't routinely do it on everyone. Oh, sure. So to, to sum up, so we're investigating this um, 70-year-old male that's come in with a background of UTI. So the investigations we want are a urine dip, we want a bladder scan, we want use and ease, we want a full blood count, CRP, CK if we're thinking about did he have a long lie, a VBG, an ECG, a chest x-ray and an ultrasound of the renal tract. Exactly. And then so if it really wasn't clear mm. of the cause mm. or you had a suspicion that it was an intrinsic renal cause, mm -hmm. perhaps because you couldn't find another reason or there was a significant amount of blood or protein in the urine dipstick, there are some other tests. So the other tests I would do would be a renal screen. So that includes looking for autoimmune or, or inflammation. So I would do an ESR mm. to look for vasculitis and a myeloma screen. So mm. the myeloma screen is electrophoresis and Bentz-Jones proteins. Mm. And then you may want to do um, kind of like your ANA and things like that. But mm. most people would then leap their renal registrar to that's at their nearest renal unit hospital to ask for advice on what tests they would want. Okay. So the management. As with anything, it depends on the precipitating cause. So what are our main management points as like a bulletproof, uh, a bulleted list even, <laughs> or a bulletproof list? So check the drug chart mm -hmm. and review that. Mm -hmm. um, make sure that you give fluids and you have a catheter to assess what's going in or out and mm -hmm. set a target to the nurse. Mm -hmm. And if they have any of the problems that we've discussed above, so any of the life-threatening complications, you need to speak to your senior to speak to intensive care or the renal team, depending on what you have where you work. Okay, brilliant. Okay, so we've covered a bit about the causes of AKI, pre-renal, renal and post-renal, where you're likely to see them and why they occur. We've talked about the dangerous consequences, those four that we just mentioned, a fluid overload, hyperkalemia, metabolic acidosis and uremia. We've covered the investigations needed and what they may show, and we've covered the treatment of an AKI and how to recognise that once you can identify the cause of an AKI, you can make that AKI a-okay. <laughs> Oh, that's all from us here. Thank you so much for joining me, Annabelle, on this quick guide to AKIs. A special thanks to Dr. Rebecca Winter for joining me here. Additional music courtesy of Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com. All references are in the show notes. And thank you so much for listening. Have a lovely week ahead. Psyched for Psychiatry podcast. I'm Louise, a third year medical student at Brighton and Sussex Medical School. And I'm Alex, a taller third year medical student at Brighton and Sussex Medical School. In this podcast, we will be discussing the Mental Health Act. It is a big part of psychiatric medicine and therefore important to understand how it works and when to use it. Unfortunately, many third year med students find it difficult to know when it is applicable and generally, well, boring. So, the aims of this podcast is for you to 1. Gain an understanding of what the Mental Health Act is. And two, for you to be able to describe when it is appropriate to use sections 2, 3, 4, 5, 2, 5, 4 and 136 of the Mental Health Act.
we will not be covering the Mental Capacity Act. That's for the next podcast. So, let's get started. We're going to start with some simple definitions. First, what is the Mental Health Act exactly? Alex? The Mental Health Act is essentially a set of laws. These laws dictate that people diagnosed with a mental disorder can be detained in hospital or police custody and have their disorder assessed or treated against their wishes under certain circumstances. It is the different parts of the law, or sections of the law, that the term sections comes from. Being sectioned is when someone is detained under the Mental Health Act and is really only ever done if they are thought to be a risk to themselves or to others. For the purposes of the Mental Health Act, a mental disorder is defined as any disorder or disability of the mind. This includes any learning disability, but does not include a dependence on drugs or alcohol. So we've talked about the definitions involved in the Mental Health Act. Now we will be discussing the different sections and when to use them. The sections you need to know about are sections 2, 3, 4, 5, 2 and 5, 4 and 136. How do you do? Let's get chatting about section 2. The initial section that people get placed on when they are in the community and they have to go into a hospital, usually, or the majority of them, is section 2 for the Mental Health Act. Right, because it's for uh, observation, assessment, and can be followed by medical treatment, and it's for f- 28 days, right? And then the section two for some actually they are regraded to section three of the Mental Health Act, which is six months for treatment. That was Jay a mental health practitioner from the Northern West Sussex Recovery and Wellbeing Team in Crawley, describing a Section 2. Under Section 2, a person with a mental disorder can be detained in a registered mental health unit for up to 28 days for an assessment. This is just to decide whether or not they will actually need to be treated. The application can be made by the patient's nearest relative or an approved mental health professional. If the patient's nearest relative are very worried about their mental health, they can contact their local GP or call an ambulance for the patient to be sectioned. The application is usually made by an approved mental health professional, however. At least two doctors must have each seen the patient in the last five days and recommend that they should be sectioned. Section 3. Let me be. Under Section 3, a person with a mental disorder can be detained specifically for treatment for up to six months. Again, the application can only be made by the patient's closest relative or an approved mental health professional. Wait, Louise. So the only difference between Section 2 and 3 is that Section 2 is for assessment and Section 3 is for treatment. And the time difference. Remember, a Section 2 can last 28 days, but a Section 3 can last up to 6 months. Unbelievable. Section 4. Is that even a law? Yes, it is a law, Alex. Under Section 4, a person can be detained for assessment, but only for up to 72 hours. This is normally used in emergency situations, when using a section 2 would take too long. Only one doctor who has seen the patient in the last 24 hours is needed for a section 4. Let's move on to section 5. This is all about using sections in hospital settings, so pay close attention. Section 5-2, I wonder who. Section 5-2 is also known as a doctor's holding power, whereby a doctor in charge of a particular patient has the power to stop them leaving hospital. They can hold the patient for up to 72 hours for an assessment. Section 5-4 is just a bit more. Section 5-4 is also known as a nurse's holding power, whereby a registered mental health nurse has the power to stop a patient from leaving a hospital voluntarily for up to six hours. 
Often, a section 5-4 leads to a doctor being found to assess the patient and consider the use of a 5-2. There are three main factors you need to consider when thinking about using sections 5-2 or 5-4 in hospitals. 1. You should be suspecting that the patient has a mental disorder. 2. The patient should be asking to leave the hospital, which you don't think is a good idea, because 3. You think the patient may be a risk to themselves or to others. Section 136 looks like you've been nicked. Under a section 136, a police officer has the authority to detain a person behaving in a public place in a manner believed to indicate that they are suffering from a mental disorder. They are taken to a place of safety to be examined by at least one medical officer and by an approved mental health professional. They could be held for up to 72 hours. This place of safety could be a police station or A&E or even a psychiatric unit. Next up, scenarios. Now that we have discussed the different sections, as well as the definitions involved in the Mental Health Act, Alex is going to give you three scenarios about patients who possibly suffer from mental disorders. We'll let you pause and have a think about which sections you think are the most appropriate to use. Ready? Okay, let's hear the first one, Alex. 28-year-old, seen in place of safety, is believed to be psychotic and having hallucinations of talking puppets telling them to self-harm. So, what do you think? That would be a section two. The person is in a place of safety and needs an assessment to determine whether or not they have a mental disorder. What's the next one, Alex? 22-year-old woman threatening to jump off into the Brighton Pier into the roaring waves below. What do you guys think of that one? That would be a 136. As the person is in public, the police are likely to be called to take them to a place of safety. Okay, and the last one, Alex? 62-year-old man on surgical ward stabbed himself in chest in response to demons. He's asking to leave the hospital. I don't think so. You guessed it, it's 5-2. The person is in hospital and sounds like he is a risk to himself if he leaves. So, that's everything you need to know about the Mental Health Act. Well, at least for third year anyway. Just remember, the Mental Health Act is really just a set of laws used to determine what to do when patients may be at risk to themselves or to others and may need to be detained for their own safety or the safety of others. The main sections you need to know about are sections 2, 3, Four, five, two, five, four, and one, three, six. But section five, two, and five, four are the ones you'll be exposed to the most on the wards in hospital. We hope you enjoyed that whistle stop tour of the Mental Health Act. All the references can be found in the podcast notes. Thanks from me, Louise, and that's me, Alex. Take it easy. Hope to see you in the next one.
Jane and welcome to this podcast. We'll be going over some of the basics of post-operative complications that follow abdominal surgery. Hopefully by the end of this episode, you'll have a better idea of the range of things that can go wrong and what to look for in the post-op patient. First of all, let's start with a quiz. Can you think of five different post-operative complications following abdominal surgery? Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I like that one too. Hopefully, a few of the well-known complications such as peritonitis, haemorrhage and paralytic ileus did make their way on your list. If you've named one or two, you've chosen a good podcast to listen to and learn from. If you said five, you'll get out your CBD well and alive. If you thought of 25 or 30, that is amazing. And you probably won't hear anything new in this podcast. But considering that abdominal surgery patients are very vulnerable to a huge amount of issues, in addition to the usual post-operative risks of major surgery and anaesthesia, it's an important topic given that most people will encounter post-op patients and a lot of these patients need urgent assessment, escalation and or emergency intervention. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of the actual complications, I think it's worth briefly going over a a general approach to post-op complications. Now this bit is really important. The following three simple questions should hopefully come to mind whenever approaching an unwell post-operative patient. Number one, when did they have their surgery? Number two, are they in the immediate, early, or late post-operative phase? And thirdly, are the complications local, which is involving the operation site itself, or general, where other body systems are affected secondary to surgery and anaesthesia? Now this three-step approach is a useful framework for approaching any post-operative complications. It may even be useful to mentally construct a table that separates the complications into these different categories. Right. Immediate post-op complications. These are issues which arise within the first 24 to 48 hours of surgery. There are three to go over in this section. So first of all, you know, once an operation wound has been closed, reactionary haemorrhage may occur as a result of insufficient surgical closure or re-bleeding of surgically damaged vessels. From the anaesthetic point of view, asphyxia is a frequently forgotten but important post-operative complication where the airway collapse, obstruction or vomit aspiration can have severe consequences. And fever can also start in this phase and it can be temporary which can actually commonly occur due to the inflammatory response generated by tissue damage in surgery. However, if it's persistent with regards to time and over 38 degrees Celsius despite antiparoxal measures, it can be an indicator of other serious complications occurring. So next section, we have the early complications. These occur anywhere between day one or two and uh, up to three or four weeks postoperatively. Firstly, paralytic ileus. Now, in abdominal surgery, 
bowel is often handled and this physical stressor can actually generate inflammatory responses and some of these uh, substances can actually um, be inhibitory neurotransmitters within the enteric nervous system and this will lead to ileus. Now some degree of post-operative ileus is normal for any abdominal surgery but if it lasts more than a few days then it is termed as paralytic ileus and it needs to be addressed in order to prevent bowel obstruction from occurring. Infections can also occur. So with surgery unwanted microorganisms can get exposed to the normally sterile areas of the body. This rings especially true for GI surgeries as the non-sterile gut lumen full of our endogenous microbiota can be exposed to the sterile peritoneal cavity either as a result of intentional resection or unintentional perforation. Patients may typically show signs of infection such as fever, tachycardia or CRPN raised white blood cells. Infections can be localised to slightly different areas. The different locations to consider include the wound site, the pelvis, subphrenium or the peritoneum itself. Hemorrhage can also occur within the early post-operative phase and the hemorrhage type here is secondary. Why secondary? Secondary hemorrhage is not directly caused as a result of surgical trauma, but as a result of infection. How? Well, as we know, infections can elicit an immune response, and the ensuing inflammation can actually cause erosion to local blood vessels, which can then cause the re-bleeding, and that is the secondary hemorrhage. Moving on, dehiscence can occur. And this means failure of surgical closure, either at the wound or at an anastomosis, typically occurring between 7 and 10 days post-operatively. Is this bad? Yes, it is quite bad. It's a very serious complication with a mortality rate of up to 30%. Wound dehiscence is often given away by lightly blood-tainted discharge oozing from the wound. Analgesia, sterile redressing, resuscitation, and often urgent return to theatre is often necessary. With anastomotic uncoupling, an additional peril of content leakage can make things a lot worse. As with any abdominal surgeries, fibrinous adhesions to develop in response to inflammation. Occasionally, these fibrous adhesions may lead to intestinal obstructions which can present anywhere in the early and late post-operative periods. Next, we've got the pulmonary system. If there is a direct or systemic insult to lung tissue, for example with trauma or shock, acute respiratory distress syndrome may arise 24 to 48 hours after surgery. And from an anaesthetic's point of view, airway management can be complicated by lung collapse, bronchopneumonia, and even aspiration pneumonitis for non-staffed patients. Pulmonary issues frequently require intensive care. Let's not forget urinary issues in the early period either. Loss of urinary output can 
result due to retention or the suppression of production due to acute tubular necrosis and renal injury. With abdominal surgery, it's quite a major procedure and bear in mind the patients will be spending a lot of time recovering and are susceptible to developing bed sores or DVTs. And finally, patients are more susceptible to developing enterocolitis, which is an inflammation of the lining of the small and large bowel systems. Now, enterocolitis is infective in nature, but it's worth separating as the treatment for these serious infections may need to be very different from the other types of infection discussed earlier. And of course, if fever and diarrhoea start to occur following a course of antibiotic treatment, Clostridium difficile enterocolitis should always be considered as a potential cause. And now, late-stage complications, which occur from three to four weeks onwards up to several months or years after the surgery. The first thing to mention once more is fibrous adhesions. So adhesions can persist and can occasionally continue to cause isolated episodes of small bowel obstruction even months and years after the surgery. Incisional hernias present as a bulge or a protrusion at or near the site of a surgical incision. And uh, these are a result of incomplete or impaired healing of the scar due to pressure, infection or just poor surgical technique. Virtually any prior abdominal operation, large or small, can lead to an incisional hernia. However, it's worth noting that midline incisions and larger incision sites are predisposed to incisional herniation more frequently. The use of surgical mesh for reinforcing the closure of the abdominal wall can be somewhat protective. Failure of wound healing can also result in the formation of a persistent sinus, especially if it's due to infection. And as always, um, there's always the possibility of the recurrence of the original lesion. However, certain surgeries such as ulcerative colitis, colectomy and bowel cancer resection are associated with far lower rates of relapse. And finally, we must consider the functional impairments that can arise as a result of any resections of parts of the GI tract. And this can involve nutritional deficiencies such as anemia or osteoporosis or symptoms as a result of less time spent overall within the GI tract, for example, dumping syndrome or diarrhea. Right, congratulations for making it this far. You've made it to the end of the podcast. Now, I know that there is a lot to learn and think about, but do bear in mind that even just going through which things can go wrong and why they may go wrong is half the battle towards remembering it and lay down the foundations for what will become your own style of clinical approach. Plus, as a bonus, I actually made a mnemonic to help remember this, which is, I have just had surgery, spelt as I-H-A-F, then 
Two days later, I'd pee happily over a foot away, which is I-D-P-I-H-O-A-F, but for three weeks, still P-U in B-E-D. Months and years later, I'm still far off, the hips are deficient and I'm just dumping diarrhoea. I'll write the mnemonic within the show description itself and briefly recap on the key take-home messages from this podcast. So, number one, the first key take-home message is Are symptoms likely to be a consequence of having surgery or not having surgery? If surgical, then are the complications likely to be due to the surgery itself? Or anaesthesia. Okay, that's the end of the SSC. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you might have found it useful. And always feel free to contact me if you have any further questions or follow-ups. Thank you.